0: Let us pray. Lord, I pray now that you would send your spirit. Give us eyes to see the great company that we are surrounded by. I pray, Lord, especially for those who are worshiping at home. They've joined our live stream. They feel very disconnected. I pray that you would give them a special comfort this morning, put breath in their lungs so that they can worship the Lamb and God and know that they are joined by a great choir and a great company. I pray that all of us, Lord, would have eyes to see you and the saints that you have given us in Jesus name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's great to see you all. Um, We are now in November and when November 1st comes around, we can look forward to some awesome holiday gatherings. We've got just a few weeks away. We've got Thanksgiving. After that, we've got Christmas and all of the parties that come in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And um, This year, there's going to be a lot of bittersweet family gatherings. Um, A lot of us are not going to be able to see all the family that we want to be able to see because of COVID-19. And so even though there might be some of the usual trappings we've come to expect, the turkey, the pumpkin pie, the tinsel, the presents, the candles, the smells, um, it's going to be bittersweet because a lot of the people that we really want to have there won't be there. And the travel that we want to be able to do will, will just not be able to happen. So, the same is true for All Saints Sunday, which is, which is today. This is normally a family gathering for God's people. And we have all the trappings this morning. We have a baptism. We've got the, the white and gold uh, liturgical colors. We've got the receiving of members, renewing of vows. We've got prayers about unity in Christ. Yet many of us can't even be in the same room together. And so it's a bittersweet family holiday. So the Christians in Asia Minor faced a very similar situation as us. They didn't have COVID 19, they didn't have the pandemic um, that was biological at the time. They had a pandemic of suspicion in the Roman Empire. State and local leaders began to suspect that it was the Christians, even though they're a tiny minority. And their beliefs and their practices that were the the cause of social unrest in the Roman Empire. And so, what some of these state and local leaders would do is they would um, they would arrest the pastors and the leaders and put them in jail or kill them um, to and scatter um, and in some cases ship people off to colonies of the Roman Empire to populate the colonies and to keep the Christian faith from thriving. And so there was a lot of Christians in the first century, um, including the author of Revelation, that had to quarantine, as it were, because they were in prison. They had to huddle up in small groups because they were separated. Um, And uh, so the author of today's reading in Revelation was one of those people. His name was John. He was in Jesus' inner circle as a young man. He even took in Jesus' mother as his own after Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, he became a pastor, and for for decades he was he was shepherding people, evangelizing people. He wrote the Gospel of John in those years, and then he was the local pastor at Ephesus, and they came and arrested him, and they shipped him off, and they quarantined him in a um, in a in a prison on the island of Patmos, completely separated from his congregation. Um, it was likely that other leaders from Ephesus were arrested and taken from them. You can imagine being there in Ephesus, just lonely for your for your leaders, for your pastor, for your friends, and for John himself. You know to be to be quarantined in his prison cell. Like worship would be bittersweet. You know you knew that Jesus was with you, and you you had the scriptures in your heart, and you 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 could worship, you could pray, um, but you couldn't be with the saints, and how how bittersweet that would have been. So here's what's encouraging to me. Um, that John uh, received a vision that helped him see that when he worshiped Jesus and when any, uh, when any Christian uh, from any age worships, worships Jesus, they're never alone. Um, he saw that when even though he was in a forced quarantine, um, he was uh, in a great company of angels and saints, and that so are we. He wrote this vision down to encourage us, to lift up our hearts um, for this bittersweet All Saints Day and any to come. So let's look at the vision together. It's going to encourage us, I believe, in two ways. Number one, it's going to encourage us that we're not alone in our worship. And number two, that we're not alone in our need for healing. So let's look at the first one. We're not alone in our worship. Starting in verse 9, Of chapter 7 John describes a breathtaking scene of the unity of God's people across space and time he says after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, alone in his prison cell, John finds himself caught up in a great heavenly worship service. What a transition that would have been. From all by yourself to there's too many people to count. He looks up and he sees a great multitude of worshipers around the holy throne of God, almost like in the round, the throne's in the center But there's a multitude, and he can't even estimate. He was able to estimate that there was like thousands and tens of thousands of angels. But there's so many worshipers, he can't even estimate. It's like as if you were to walk onto a great, vast beach, maybe like one of the dunes that's right on Lake Michigan. And you realize to yourself, there are so many grains of sand right here in this dunes, I can't even estimate how many there are. Yet he can discern that there's a great ethnic diversity among the saints. He says that all tribes and nations and peoples and languages are around the throne. Now John had seen his share of ugly racism and and racial and ethnic divisions in his day. Just people dividing and rejecting one another and canceling each other based on uh, which foods were clean or unclean, circumcision, do you practice it or not? Some are wealthier and higher status, others are lower status, and getting the shaft and getting getting rejected and left out of the, you know, the the insider parties and just arguments and ugliness and so how encouraging this would have been for him to see. There's no more of that around the throne. Everyone is included. Now notice the white robes. Do you see that in verse nine? They have white robes. What do those represent? So, in short, what white robes represent here is, uh, it's it's many layers, but one of the significant ways that white robes are presented in Revelation is just this sense of, I belong here. Have you ever gotten ready for a party and kind of agonized over, what do I wear? Um, like, you don't want to overdress, because then people are like, whoa, I guess you just think this is going to be a high-class party. I guess you're just, you know, but you don't want to underdress, because then people are like, eww. Did you know what you were coming to? And you want to, like, get it just right. You want your clothes to say, I belong here. And so what these, what these robes do is they symbolize uh, worthiness, uh, an, a sense of being honored and included by God himself, and a sense in which we might be all, we still have our distinct cultures and languages and peoples and nations, but we have a, we have a common invitation from, uh, from God and the Lamb who, who made these robes, robes white. We didn't come with, with white robes. We, we came with filthy robes, and he made them white, and he included us. So they all belong. Now, do you see towards the end of verse 9, there's palm branches, and they're holding them up, and they're holding palm branches as they worship. And some of you, if you've ever been in a Palm Sunday service, maybe you've held like a palm branch and waved it um, in, in honor of King Jesus, and that's what they're doing. What's really encouraging about this is that there's no sense of of political divisions among God's people anymore. It, they're they're all hailing King Jesus. He's won the victory. He's won um, the the uh, the great victory over all lords and kings and manipulators who will divide God's people for profit and power. And there's no longer any sense of uh, they have to to mute each other um, because political opinions are just like getting too hot and heavy. Um, they all they all actually share one king and one lord, and and that's symbolized in the the ancient symbol of the of the palm branch. So they're not quarantined. They're not divided over politics. They're not worried about what they're going to wear. Uh, and. John hears them. He hears a, a noise that probably shook him to his core and, and, and stayed with him until he died. A number of people that no one could number roars out in unison. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. They praise God together. Imagine the, you know, the biggest football game that you've ever been to and just like quadruple that. And quadruple it again and quadruple it again until you can't count the people. But they have one roar and they raise their voices and they say salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What's incredible is not only are they doing this in unison, but there's a whole choir literally of angels that surround them, that are behind them and they join in the liturgy. You could even imagine, for those of you who are here, like like up there in the balcony, what if there was like a choir of angels? You didn't know that they were there, but all of a sudden during the liturgy, they like chimed in and joined in, in the singing and in the prayers. And those of you who are at home, what if, you, what if all of a sudden, as you're um, like worshiping King Jesus right there in your kitchen, all of a sudden you saw like, as like angels packing your your house and falling prostrate all around you in worship of King Jesus. That's what John got to see. In verse 11, he says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The saints praise our God and the angels fall prostrate behind them and praise our God. What does John see in this vision? He sees saints from every age Saints from his own congregation and those who had come before, and us, and saints in the future. You can't number them, that's the point. He sees angels, thousands and ten thousands of angels, flat on their face. He sees the Father and the Son on their thrones in all glory. And there's a common theme, a common strain. It's of worship, it's of we've been delivered, it's of God has been good to us, He's won the victory. John gets to see everyone who's present at this worship service. I've seen a couple videos being shared um, on social media that really caught my attention. And it was of people who were colorblind being given special glasses that would help them see color in a new way for the first time. And what happens is that, uh, you know, the video's playing, someone's opening a present um, at, at their, at their uh, birthday. I, the, the one I saw was some adult children giving their middle-aged parents, uh, or mi- middle-aged father who was colorblind, some glasses. And I don't know if you've seen these videos, but he puts the glasses on. He looks up and immediately doubles over. And he weeps, and he weeps, and he weeps, and he weeps. Why? Because his whole life, there had been beauty surrounding him that he couldn't see. He couldn't see the burnt orange on the fall trees. He couldn't see the specks of, of blue and orange on the birds. He couldn't see those pink and gray sunsets. All his life. And for a moment, he puts the glasses on and he can see it. It becomes vivid. And he's so overcome and so overawed by the beauty that was always around him that he could never could see. He spends, you know, a few seconds looking and the rest of the time crying. Because he's so overcome. He's so overwhelmed. What John's giving us here, what John got himself, is some is some glasses to see the beauty that had always surrounded him when he worshipped Jesus. When we see this vision, it's like we put the goggles on ourselves and all of a sudden, (gasps) angels, (laughs) the light of heaven, dearly beloved departed saints from every age, Elijah, Moses, and the Lamb, and God, and there's too many to count. It might be true that you're worshiping alone in your kitchen today or your basement today. Your apartment. And it feels like you're all alone. Let me tell you something. There's something happening that you cannot see. And John is giving you some glasses to put on. You are surrounded by saints and angels and the whole company of heaven. Your song is not a solitary song. It's a great chorus. It's a mighty roar. Another part of Scripture puts it this way. You have died. He's talking to people who haven't literally died yet. But if they're in Christ, he says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. What is he saying? The truest part about you, if you're united with Christ, the truest part about you is the part you can't see yet. It's the part of you that's hidden with Christ at the right hand of the Father. With angels and saints and light and glory, one day you'll see it when Christ is revealed. Right now, you can get a glimpse through the Word of God and the set-apart imagination. So we're not alone in worship. Far from it. Uh, Secondly, we're not alone in our need for healing. We're not alone in our need for healing. Sometimes we feel like we are. Look at verse 13. The, the vision continues. John actually interacts with an elder who is a permanent resident of heaven at that point. One of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? Now John, either because he doesn't know or because he defers to the, the elder, because he's an elder, um, he says, Sir, you know. And then the elder said to John, these are the ones, this is verse 14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, coming out, present tense, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So an elder addresses John with a question, where did these people come from who are clothed in the white robes? What's their story? Um, and um, the elder tells their story. He says, Um, where they've come from, um, what they're going through right now, and what's coming for them. There's a sense of progression here. Um, he he mentions that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The implication is that at one point, their robes, which are like, a, it's a symbol for their life, at one point their robes were filthy, dirty, stained, not uh, to be worn before God and the Lamb. But that they had washed them in the blood of the lamb. This is strange imagery, especially if you've been reading the Bible for the first time or haven't looked at it in a long time. Like that's kind of weird language. Like you don't wash things in blood, you know. Um, it's a it's a symbolic way of picturing the most beautiful truth and the most powerful truth in the whole world in all of history, which is that. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who had all that heavenly glory, took on flesh. He actually took on flesh and blood, and then he gave his life on the cross. He was pierced, and he bled for the specific purpose of taking away the stain of our sin and healing us and making us worthy so that we could dip our robes in his blood, so that we could dip our life in his healing and his forgiveness. It's the only thing that makes us worthy of standing before the throne. And so at one point, these saints had come to the cross before they came to the throne and said, Jesus, I trust that your sacrifice can take away the stain of my sin. Cleanse me, forgive me. And Jesus was glad to do it. He came willingly and glad to forgive our sin. Many years ago I smeared butter on my friend's pants because I thought it was a funny joke. It was many years ago. I was laughing uh, and thought it was hilarious. And my friend turned to me and said, Grease stains, Aaron. Grease stains. <laughs> and <laughs> oh, okay and their parents were stained forever. Now, sometimes we think that our the things that the wrong things that we do or the right things that we fail to do is just a big joke. It's just it's just funny. It can be wiped off, wiped away, forgotten. But to paraphrase my friend, sin stains. It stains our soul and it stains the people of our Uh, in our life and it stains the world and we scrub and scrub and scrub and scrub and scrub and like good things can't make it go away but these saints have turned to the only solution that can take the stain away they dip their robes in the blood they've asked jesus to forgive their sin not because it wasn't a big deal it was a big deal such a big deal that he had to come and die but because he was glad for it to be a big deal he was glad to give his life he was glad to show us his love. And that's why the saints are singing so loudly. Because it's my God who has delivered me from sin and hell and death. So that's their past. And he mentions they're coming out of the struggle. That means that there's some ambiguity here. Is he talking about living saints? Is he talking about dead saints? And, and I think that what he's referring to here are current believers who are enduring their current crisis, their current trial. They're coming out of the struggle. Every age has believers who are coming out of the struggle. And even after they've come out of the struggle and are and are um, made new in Christ, they have died and they're alive in Christ. You probably know some people who are. Um, they're still waiting for something. They're still waiting for a healing to come. Why, how do we know this? John switches to the future tense. Look with me at verse 15. So therefore they are before the throne of God. That's currently true. And they serve him night and day in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Uh, okay, and continues. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It will happen. Hasn't happened yet in its fullness, in its completeness. Um, my friends, are you waiting for the completeness of your healing? Do you ever feel like you're never quite at home, never quite at rest? Do you long to have your body and your mind and your heart restored? Do you have any memories you would love to just be healed once and for all? Do you struggle? Do you struggle with paranoia, self-hatred, insecurity, crippling sadness? Do you have all kinds of like broken relationships in your past and you wish you could heal them? There's just like no way. Do you have trauma in your past or in your present? Um, do you have a sense that your gifts and your calling haven't been fully realized and complete yet welcome to the club <laughs> welcome to the club we're all there we're all you're in good company the healing isn't complete yet we all need that permanent shelter we all need the tears to be wiped away and here John sees a vast innumerable number of people who are forgiven um they're they've had the victory won for them in christ they're unified they're face to face with jesus and yet even they await the healing to come that there's more in god for them than they've yet experienced even as we worship god in the lamb today whether we're at home or here we await the day when he will fully cover us as a final shelter from any predator or pain We await all suffering to end, all sickness to be healed, including COVID-19 and cancer and broken hearts and aching joints and hunger pains and traumatic brain injuries, gunshots and gangrene and lawsuits and lying lips and fear and fibromyalgia and fracturing families of all kinds. Not only will the good shepherd wipe away every tear with his gentle hand, with his strong hand he will remove any cause for tears to be shed in the first place. And we're all waiting for it together. You know, sometimes people feel alone in their pain. Sometimes people feel like their suffering makes them defective and weird and worthy of rejection. Have you felt ever like the last nine months you weren't doing the quarantine right, or you weren't doing COVID right, or you weren't doing social media right, or politics right? Have you felt cast out, unworthy, forgotten? Let's put on the glasses together and look around with John and see all the saints, innumerable sufferers these people are strugglers and sufferers and forgiven saints with sin in their past. Yet they're standing before God's throne. Even as angels lie prostrate around them, they're standing. They have white robes. They're forgiven. They're hopeful. No matter how lonely we are or how acute our suffering, these saints keep us company today. And every time we gather for worship, Every time we pray, they join our voices with their voices and our song with their song. The angels and archangels are glad for us to be here. Together with them, we lift up our hearts. We worship the same Lord. We're around the same throne. We worship the same Lord. We have the same God. We stand with these saints in the same baptism. We confess the same faith, and in such a company, my friends, around such a throne, you and I, this morning, are not alone. We're not alone. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.